it's the scene world podcast i am aj he is Jurg over there um, yeah and this is the scene world podcast i think i said that um over to you my man well today we are talking to joe baron from slightly made studios mm-hmm. he is marketing and esports manager and um he was also responsible for um, Project Cars 3 hmm. that was published by Namco Bandai recently this year. Okay. And we talk about it, uh, about the whole series of Project Cars, and especially why um, why the game changed from being a pure simulator to a more arcadic race experience. Well, do we have any news? Sure. Um, I've just got one here, just that uh, Os- yeah. Osmu, which is a um, it's a code interpreter that lets you play the old um, Infocom, you know, text adventure games. Um, they now have a C128 and Plus 4 version that has just been released. Um, so that's that's cool. There's a link to, we'll put a link to where that, where you can get that and check it out and play it on your plus four or 128 or advice if that's your particular thing um and that's all i got okay well i got i got a couple of news okay number one is a sad news silvio savarino aka the overkiller Mm -hmm. sent an email to um to hukuto force and i forwarded it to the scene world staff he decided to leave Hokuto Force, Scene World Magazine. Hmm. Wrote, it's too stressful in his real life activities and having issues with stress in the demo scene. Right. Um, and he feels like this is nothing for him anymore. Which is kind of sad for me, but of course I consider him a good friend. Yeah. Um, but, he I mean, was he's one still... of the co-founders of uh, the Scene World magazine twenty years ago. Yeah, well, he's still a good friend, you know. He's still, you know, he may be out of the scene, but you know, I mean, we're still, still certainly not going to cut off our ties with him, you know. I hope. I mean, that's also up to him. I mean, um, I think it was it was a lot hasn't... of stress from external forces because he said it was nothing to do with Scene World, nothing to do with with Hokuto Force specifically. It was just a lot of right. other external things right. that he didn't need to deal with. Which I understand. You get older. There's the last yeah. thing you need to be dealing with is is jackasses in your hobby. You know, right. they're making it a pain in the ass. You know, like. But I mean, we had those situations in Scene World, especially in the early days too. The haters and stuff, mm-hmm. and we also wouldn't quit the scene because of it. Yeah. So. Well, sometimes you know you make a make a value call for what's more important in your life, and you know that's that's this that's the call he made, and and you know I'll stand by him, and he's still, you know, he's still my buddy, even though he's not involved in this anymore. That's you know, I have friends what? outside of the so scene. Silvio, let's stay in touch. Yes, we love you. And and you're staying on my Facebook friends list. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Other news I got from Richard Bayliss, mm-hmm. who's also working for SeaWorld, and he said, "With thanks to Arla Games for his help, a lot of my creations and collaboration projects are now playable on the site in a web browser. I will be adding a few more 
of my quite favorites on on my itch.io profile later this week. Okay. Hopefully for Christmas. Cool. The only games that are not available yet are Killer Saucers and Sapet in the Butt DX. What? Oh, zap, zap it in the butt. Zap it in the butt. Be... I have no idea. Yeah, These it. are going to be released on Christmas Day. The site is richard-tnd.itch.io. Which we will put right down there so that you can see it and, right. and all that jazz. Yeah. There are a few more games planned for 2021, including Cruiser X79. That dude is just a, just a beast. He just blasts through games like nothing. I know. I know, I know. And she's doing the assembler course for yeah, Scene Thanks for that, Richard. Yes. Okay, other news is, as I, um, well, assumed in the last podcast news section, Papyrum has been released. Oh, really? And it has shipped, it has been shipped last, um, last, uh, last um, Monday. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be here on Thursday, okay. but due to Christmas, um, well, Christmas load in the postal service, a GLS yeah. pushed it to another date, and it's, now it's yeah. coming out. Um, it, it's going to be delivered to me on the 22nd, they say. Nevertheless, so it's still coming. on the day you, or the day before you hear this. Yeah. And, um, but there are videos, and it's awesome. It's All right. awesome. All right. Cool, it's cool. Awesome. It's, it's the best um, graphically and sound-wise and uh, even game-wise it seems to make fun since it's the most advanced uh, game ever released on the Mega Drive. And that is because it's using a Datameister, a Datenmeister um, um, sound chip. Okay. And, and it's using a coprocessor and it's having 80 megabytes. So it's the biggest mega a Mega Drive slash Genesis game ever released. I mean, Martin Mellon Games did appear Solar 10 years ago, and that was 64 megabytes. Mm-hmm. And that was already the biggest, and now they have 80. Okay. And, and, um, and, and, and in this video, I will show you this guy even opened the cartridge to prove there are those custom ships in it. Okay, so, cool. You really get what you paid for. Nice. Um, it's amazing. And now um, they already announced a new game, but there are no details in it. Except it's a brawler. It's exclusive. It supports two-player games. It has a dolphin in it. Echo? Yeah, I thought about that too. Yeah. yeah, and they have a little, they have a little echo on this yeah. mark uh, page. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like echo. Huh. Um, the game title is A M B ninety six, and in the pow- pauses. You can enter the letter you you guessed could be okay. in there, but the short form of the title is AMB's ninety six. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cool. So cool. We'll put links to everything where people can find them. <laughs> yeah, he 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 has hidden that. 
pretty well. Yes. Another thing is what shocked most people is that the cheapest version of the game Paprium is now not costing $69 but $129. <laughs> and that is because he wrote that is because PayPal um that is well that is because PayPal froze his money three years ago because you know of this dodgy kind of behavior mm -hmm. and now he said he, he he shipped he shipped out and paid for the production of the pre-orders all from his own pockets and now the new new now the new people ordering the games have to make up and fill the of gap of course of course yeah. of course right well either way is it worth 129 dollars i'm not know. sure I'm not sure, but I'm happy that you're, I didn't cancel my pre-order. Yeah, you're gonna find and out. And waited almost for for four years. Yeah. And only paid sixty-nine dollars. Yeah. And if you were one of the founder edition orders from uh, from August twenty thirteen, you even paid only fifty-nine dollars. Okay. Nice. But but I but I ordered in April. Uh, 2017 when they had this pre-order phase right 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 on their bottom game factory page yeah yeah so against all the odds and whopper rare ex ex accusations and stuff he really really pushed it out before christmas and it seems like everybody will get it before christmas because um the american sellers or uh buyers because those were shipped from America. Yeah. But my cool. version is coming from France, and uh, that will will take a while to hmm. to arrive. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well. Oh. That's it. All right. If that's it, then we should go talk to Joe. Who is right over there in sometime in the probably in days before the end Perfect. of the world. Perfect. We'll yeah, let's go hit him up. Yeah. Bye bye. Womp, womp, womp. Today we are talking to Joseph Barron, marketing and esports manager from Slightly Med Studios. And today we will be talking about Project Cars 3. Hello, Joe. Nice to Hi meet guys. you. Yeah, Welcome nice to the podcast. I'm glad we fight. You uh, mentioned before we started recording, we've been trying to do this interview for nearly three years, so it's good to finally get there. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Even if it's for the successor game and not for Project Cars 2 that we originally planned for. And, um, well, usually we ask our guests how you actually started being into computers and into the video game industry. Uh, it's a long-winded story for me, so I'll try and do the short version of it. But sure. um, I've been into games since I was a kid. From uh, My dad tried not to let us get into games, but he uh, he got into games basically because he used to play Sega arcade games on, on business trips. And then he bought a, a Mega Drive once the home version of Super Hang On came out because he used to race motorbikes when he, when he was younger. Uh, and then one night he fell asleep while he was playing it. And then as kids, we came downstairs the next morning and found this strange machine in the living room uh, and ever since then it's been impossible to get away from it um, and then as far as actually working in the industry 
So uh, some friends and I met through the GameSpot community in the early early part of the 2000s, probably 2005-ish, something like that. Uh, and we got inspired and, and started our own website and doing reviews and, and podcasts and stuff like that. Uh, and then I was a freelance writer in the press for a while. I did some stuff for GameSpot and for IGN and a few other places. Uh, and then went sideways out of that into the uh, development side of the industry from there. Ah, that is why you mentioned prior to this interview that you are a retro guy, because it started with the Mega Drive. Yeah, so basically ever since then I've just either hoarded things or regretted selling things and then collected, tried to recollect things later on. And it's been yeah. frustrating realizing over the years that I maybe have quite good taste, particularly in, uh, when I was sort of in the PS1 era as a kid, I had quite good taste apparently, but traded a lot of games in or sold games when the PS2 came out. Mm. And then going back and, and recollecting some stuff from that era recently has been a bit of a shock to the system realizing, oh, this thing that I thought was cool because I played a demo of and maybe spent 10, 15 pounds to buy, oh, now I have to spend 100 pounds, 150 pounds to get it again, which is the way of things. <laughs> um, for sure, but yeah, it's, I built up a, a decent collection over the years now. Yeah. And, uh, we had a trip to Japan a couple of years ago that included raiding all the, the usual places that everybody raids when they go to Japan. So yeah, it's, it's a growing collection for sure. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so, well, the project course actually that we talked to uh, about today um, actually has a different start than most games. Actually... Um, well, Project Cars, despite it's, uh, it's about cars, it's not really standing for cars, but for Community Assisted Racing Simulator. And the, the, um, the series of Project Cars actually grew out from the community. And I wonder how did Slightly Mad Studios uh, one day wake up and say, we want to make a racing simulation bundle of all types of racings you can get and and take it to the community and make it community. So it came about originally because the, the CEO Ian Bell kind of needed to put a, a new business plan together after uh, the company had worked on some Need for Speed titles for EA uh, and they weren't sure what they were going to do next basically and it was before uh, before the days of, of Kickstarter even existed. I think it was two, three years before Kickstarter was invented as an idea. Uh, and Ian himself came up with this notion of, well, we, we have this great idea for a game that we want to do, which, as you say, covers the whole breadth of motorsport from um, all the sort of big professional series that people know and then also the history of the sport and all the junior categories that you would race in you know, as a young driver coming up through your career. Uh, and no one had done something like that before, so he decided to, to reach out to the racing game fan community and put this crowdfunding idea together, and, and that's where uh, the whole idea came from, and, and then the, the name of the game as well originally came from that. Yeah, actually, I read, as you said, um, that you were involved in the Need for Speed series, at least for some titles. Could you name maybe one or two that um, the uh, studio was involved in? With? Yeah, so it, we, the studio did uh, Need for Speed Shift One and Two. Nice. Yeah, which mm. actually, which actually was outstanding from the series because it was more like, uh, it was more like simulation racer, and was not so so much arcade. Yeah, absolutely. It was a bit. It was a big departure for Need for Speed, and I think it kind of at a time when really there wasn't 
there wasn't really an in-between at that point between the kind of super serious, very niche PC sim racing titles and where Gran Turismo or, or Forza were at the time. There wasn't really anything in between. And I think that proved that there was more to the racing game market than hardcore, sort of almost like uh, almost sort of like a flight sim equivalent and the arcade stuff. And no one had kind of gone through the middle of that. And that, that period of time working on Need for Speed, I think really proved to the industry and to people that's slightly mad that there was this, this ground that could be really fruitful uh, and could produce some really exciting uh, new sort of kind of racing game. Uh, and then from there, it became this idea of, well, what else can we bring to that? There's a history of motorsport, all the junior categories that don't normally get featured in, in games as well. And that sort of became a kind of snowball effect that eventually became Project Cars. So slightly Med Studios stands for Med Gaming Ideas? <laughs> I think, it's, I think it's, it was a very clear, uh, anybody who knows Ian in the community or has, has worked with him and, and the guys that you started the business with, it's, it's very apt, let's say, the name for the company. Um, the company, if it didn't have these grand, crazy ideas, wouldn't be where it is today. Mm, interesting. Yeah, um, so... Well, I mean, I played Project Cars 1 and 2, so I'm well aware that you had to really focus and get into the gameplay as it's really a simulator and you can't just, you know, gas through on the maximum. You would probably slide and fall off the track. But um, I didn't play the Project Cars 3 yet, but what I've read on, uh, on other sources was and even in Wikipedia, it says that Project Cars 3 is not a uh, not simulation genre, but an arcade racer genre. So it's not really as simple as that, really, as far as a, a change from one completely different type of game to another. It's more that what we've noticed over the years with the first two games is that the community kind of, uh, in the same way that I was saying before, that there wasn't really anything other than one end of the genre or the other before kind of project cars came along really. I think we found with the first two games in the series that a lot of people in the community were sort of graduating from arcade games to sim racing through the games that we put out. And that wasn't necessarily something that we'd expected or intended really when the game started out. It was very much made with sim racing fans and the crowdfunding and all of that. So once we realized that that was starting to happen, we wanted with the new game, not to take away the simulation stuff, you know, it's still a madness engine game. It still has the technology underpinning it and the, the physics, be it the physics of the cars themselves or the weather simulation or the atmospheric simulation, all that stuff's still there. It was more about bringing in new features and improving areas of the game that weren't quite doing enough for those newcomers who were graduating to sim racing. So a lot of work went into really making big improvements to the way the game plays on a normal controller on a gamepad, which is a huge improvement for this game and then introducing these uh, the revamped career mode rpg style systems with experience points and stuff like that and then car upgrades car customization all new multiplayer modes just making it um the game around the simulation a much better experience interesting yeah um i i guess when you said you slightly modified the gameplay and uh, the way the game acts and the controls were you aware that um, it could, um, well, put some people down that were expecting a pure simulation like the first two um, parts of the series? We knew it was a risk, but also you know, those 
uh, there is stuff for those people as well. You know, they haven't, you don't want people to feel like they've been abandoned with their hardcore fan. You know, I personally worked quite closely with our, our physics team and our, our vehicle team when it came to improvements to like the way the steering wheels work, particularly in the force feedback area. So we really dismantled the way that we did force feedback in the previous games and looked at it piece by piece and, and built it back up, which was a really fun process to do actually going through kind of rather than just looking at the physics and the forces being delivered to the wheels, we went through the previous two games and looked very deeply at the different phases of, of cornering in a, in a real car and what bits of detail were missing and in the braking phase and the turning phase and then putting the power back on and the extra detail you need when you're trying to catch a slide and that sort of thing. So the level of detail we go to and the, the kind of fine-tooth comb that, that we've always had with these games is, is definitely still there. I think that the sim racing community at times can be a little bit hostile to things that are designed to bring new people into the genre and that's something that we we really want to improve for our games and for the genre as a whole is uh, there does need to sometimes be um you know more acceptance of things like that and i think anyone who plays uh project cars 2 even with a gamepad compared to how it feels straight out of the box in, in project cars 3 would see such, such a huge improvement there that that's immediately going to be a make it a more welcoming place for newcomers and if more people play racing games, particularly more simulation-style racing games, then that's going to improve the whole player base, improve the competition. Everybody has to improve their games then, and that's that's the sort of thing we're trying to do is make the genre more welcoming and, and sort of challenge the big boys a little bit and uh, yeah, improve that competition and, and make all the games better, if that makes sense. Interesting that um, the, making it more welcoming and controllable by new newcomers were a factor for making it less um, totally realistic and simulation-wise, but also get some arcade elements in it. Um, because normally, if you have a series, you would, um, I guess, you would try to, well, um, make people that love the other earlier parts of the series um, feel welcome and at home, um, and in, instead saying. I take a risk and modify this a bit is quite surprising because I mean let's face it when you when you play pro evolution soccer or FIFA soccer you expect a certain type of game and they are not redoing or fun fundamentally change the gameplay or the way it controls year after year so project cars one and two really play similar um, and then now with with Project Cars three, you kind of made a cut and uh, changed a few things. Uh, that's interesting for me that you would go and take a risk like that. I think if we, you know, if people don't take risks in a genre like this, where um, you know the games, uh, you know, historically they don't change a huge amount in terms of in sequels and racing games. A little bit like the like the sports games you were referencing. And I think we're at a stage where the genre is beginning to grow a little bit more quickly because of things that are happening in the real world of motorsport and more people getting interested in motorsport in general, and that's helping to grow sim racing. But if we don't take a few risks here and there and make sim racing itself more welcoming, then it's only ever going to sort of appeal to the same people who've been playing these games for, um, you know, for some cases for 10, 20, even mm. 20 years, even longer. And we need we do need to open it up to new people. It's what we we don't want to have a, a, a situation where um, the kind of player base gets older and older in our genre. And with the things that are happening in in, 
in motorsport as well with uh, you, know, you know we've got formula e in the game for, for the first time for example and this trend towards electric racing and other aspects of things you know if we want if there's going to be more younger people getting interested in racing they need to be um kind of gradually able to be introduced to the genre and you're seeing that with uh, the games our colleagues are making over at Codemasters as well like they had a an optional simple handle model handling model in, in formula one this year for instance so i think you'll see more of that in the genre going forward i think i think you won't necessarily see it with some of the more um, kind of PC-only racing sims. I think those will kind of keep doing their thing. Uh, but with multi-platform racing games like ours, particularly, um, yeah, I think you'll see that sort of thing happening more often. Yeah, you you mentioned electronic cars. So maybe if there is Project Cars 4, we are going with, with um, e-cars. Instead. Well, we have got some more some more uh, electric cars in this game that we didn't have very many of at all previously. Um, but yeah, I'd be very surprised if we go all electric, especially with our uh, tendency to focus on the history of the sport as well. <laughs> and we're not going to suddenly forget about the, uh, the Le Mans cars of the 70s and 80s and things like that. Oh. Interesting that you mentioned um, staying with the engine you used before, because that is also something that people were afraid about in the community, that now Codemasters is involved, you would switch to the Codemasters engine for the uh, Project Cars 3, but you didn't actually do that. You keep using what you used before. Yeah, there was there was never an intention of, of uh, changing engine for this game. You know, the, the obviously the first two games were very successful and built on that technology, and we have been working on this game for quite a long time before the acquisition by Codemasters. So especially in the latter stages of development, it would have been a, a nightmare of biblical proportions to try and change the game engine after we've been working on this game for over a year uh, before we were even acquired back at the beginning of this year. So yeah, there was no no intention of doing that with this game um, and the madness engine and project cars itself are very much products of, of slightly mad studios so you can expect that to continue for the foreseeable future but at the same time having said that we are beginning to share technology and expertise back and forth between the, the two companies which obviously would make no sense for us not to do that um, and that's going to make us stronger and help us to learn things that we maybe didn't know about before and also it'll, it'll teach them on the co-masters side some, some stuff they didn't, maybe didn't think of or, or know already and then even little things like um you know our, our assets and stuff like that although we're working in different game engines you know certain elements of certain tracks or cars where the licensing allows for it you know there's, there's things we could um to share that to get the little boosts ahead on, on the next games that we're both working on yeah, and Codemasters doesn't have. I mean, their engine is no no slouch in itself. I'm a, I'm a fan of the Dirt series that they they put out, and it's those are solid solid racing games. You know, it's it's more the arcade style, but it's still you know it's they're 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 fair, they're well done. They're well done. So you're not so the an acquisition by Codemasters is not hurting anything. It's not it's not gonna... <laughs> no no not at all. I think that yeah. one. Absolutely, the the expertise and the knowledge. You know, there's a lot of overlap in um, kind of in the, those areas, particularly with the areas that both companies share. Mm -hmm. So, um, physics programmers, in, and not just general physics programmers in general, but they have specialists over there that focus on um, their tire model, and so do we. And there's overlaps in in some of the that existing sort of experience and knowledge, and then also there's even overlaps in data that both companies have received from car companies over the years that we may have interpreted slightly differently but then that shared knowledge might mean that there's a better interpretation that can be done in the future by sort of meeting in minds um so yeah i think it's only gonna only gonna benefit both sides but i'd, I'd be surprised if um 
if we suddenly suddenly switch to their technology, I think it's going to be more a case of uh, learning from sort of development pipelines rather than both companies converging on one engine that gets used for everything, at least for the foreseeable future. Interesting that you mentioned in the buy sentence the licensing issue, and um, I mean, I mean, racing series had a lot of those problems for many years. You know, there, there, the for many years there was no IndyCar series game, or um, there was a huge gap between one NASCAR racing game and the other NASCAR racing game. And and I think even in the Formula One area, there were some years where there was no recent. Um, um, Formula One game after uh, Jeff Goulmont stopped working on racing games that that he actually made famous uh, in the in the 90s. You know, uh, GP um, Grand Prix One for the Amiga PC, and then uh, GP uh, Grand Prix Two that um, didn't even run on the fastest PC at that time fluently because the game was so technically advanced. Um, so that is, I think, one of the hardest issues of Project Cars, being allowed to put all those series of, of car, different car racing games in it. I think, uh, yeah, the part of the reason we've been able to do that really is that we haven't taken necessarily an approach so far of uh, always approaching um, like a, a championship and trying to grab the whole championship wholesale. Um, we found it, uh, particularly in the world of sports car racing, there's a lot of overlap with um, the same cars that appear in multiple championships around the world. So the best example of that is the GT3 class where um, there are national, regional, world championships all run by uh, different organizations and, and different promoters. And it was easier for us to be able to replicate versions of those by licensing the cars that appear in all those championships. Because in some cases, it's the same team with the same car, the exact same car, not, not another one from a different garage based on another one in the part of the world, the exact same car racing in lots of different championships around the world, sometimes in the same livery as well. So it was easier for us to go in, in cases like that and license the Ferrari GT3 car, the Lamborghini, the Mercedes, get the whole series worth of cars because we're already licensing with those brands for you know road cars or, or whatever else it might be or some of their historic stuff. So we can bundle that stuff in and then build a sort of, with the same rules effectively, build like a facsimile of a championship without necessarily having to have the rights for a, a specific series. You're very much, I think, and history shows us in some of the games that have gone down this route more recently as well, you get very tied into one specific thing uh, if you go start licensing championships wholesale even with uh, with formula e we took the approach of, of licensing the car rather than the, the full championship just to have that flexibility of, of tracks and environments where that car can appear and, and things like that and similar with uh, with indycar that we have as well so it's been more of an approach of licensing cars for us rather than championships and that's partly what gives us that flexibility to cover such a broad selection of a different motorsport disciplines and to go back through the historical stuff as well which is uh, very tricky to do if you're trying to get uh, historical rights to championships rather than the individual cars and brands that appeared in them and it's also interesting that you found namco bandai as a publisher i mean namco bandai i remember those names from pac-man and stuff <laughs> not really uh, for, for a racing game uh, series you know 
Well, they obviously do have some racing game series. I'm definitely a big Ridge Racer fan from back in the day, and particularly Ridge Racer Type 4, actually, on the PS1. So there, there is some stuff there. Um, but I think, yeah, they've kind of not always known what to do with uh, with Ridge Racer itself necessarily. And, you know, one day uh, I'd love to see that come back. But they, they had a period where um, I think they saw this growth in, in simulation racing coming. And, you know, Project Cars had been... You know, the crowdfunding had been happening and it had been getting a lot of attention that that first game while it was in development because of it being one of the first uh what was next gen at the time you know, the ps4 generation it was one of the first games for that generation that was shown quite early on you know a year or two before those those machines were were coming out and i think they saw the potential of the game and the potential of the genre and you know they, they were eager to come on as, as a publisher and you know those first two games and been really successful with them and they're, they're really easy guys to work with on the third game as well so yeah it's been uh, been a good match i mean as i said with with the rich racer series they probably had enough experience to see the potential in project cars you know um um interesting is you you mentioned in project cars um one and two that you actually were planning to release it on on linux and and on the switch but later on it was said um, by slightly mad studios the switch is not powerful enough and and i wonder if this wouldn't be a good case to prove that it is possible like i mean there were other impossible games like doom or or wolfenstein 2 that suddenly also were um well by panic button released also, you know, scaled down in resolution and detail on the graphics. But I, I wonder if you are not planning to give it another try, perhaps, at some point. Yeah, it's, it's trickier for us, I think, than for sort of your traditional mainstream genre games. I think the, the kind of the depth of the simulation technology that underpins what Project Cars is, and that's you know, everything from the cars themselves to the tire model to uh to the weather simulation and not just the the weather in terms of the graphics but the actual physical simulation of the atmospherics and the way that uh, rain interacts with the track or temperature interacts with the track all those kinds of things and it's not necessarily exclusive to project cars even but the, the sim racing genre and our game are quite processor heavy and while we you know we could do what what doom did and, and what other games have done in terms of compromising on on graphical detail and resolution but we'd also have to compromise on physics and weather simulation and things like that and it's, it's sort of not being willing to to compromise on areas like that that's such a core part of of what the franchise is known for that's sort of led us away from um from switch for the time being i don't think we ever want to say never but it's, <laughs> it's a it's a technical challenge that is um yeah, it would take it take us quite a while to tackle that. I think for sure, but yeah, I wouldn't say wouldn't say never. Uh, but yeah, we'd have to be confident that we weren't compromising the core of what the game is, and that that goes beyond just visual detail. Good point. Good point. Um, the um, weather simulation, by the way, I remember I was going crazy once, and I had like nighttime, foggy, raining. Um, no, no, it was. Nighttime, foggy, slippery road, and snow. Paul <laughs> was like, "Oh my God, you, you can get it all." And I, I couldn't, I couldn't really, I couldn't really drive a meter without 
getting off the track. I was like, oh my god, you can really get crazy with the weather simulation and settings in in those games. And I guess you kept that for Project Car 3. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, we can't do away with, with things like that, having spent so much time developing these systems. And, um, yeah, the way that the, the weather interacts with the weather preceding it or the weather after it, if it's, you know, if it's changeable and just uh, the general, the general level of, of challenge, be it the challenge of driving behind someone in the spray or, or dealing with the low grip levels in, in the snow and things. It's something that we're very proud of and it's kind of a, a, a core tenet of the franchise. So yeah, that, that's not going away in this game or, or anything else that we do anytime soon. I, I wonder um, when you prefer, uh, when you prepare for such games, do you go to lengths and go to the real locations like, like for example, football games do and measuring the location and the track and doing tons of photos and um, analyzing the physical aspect of the cars and how how the weather is influencing it? Is it depends that on stuff the, Yeah, it depends on the car and, and it depends on the track. So. The majority of the tracks these days, we do, we get um, sort of surface scan data, sometimes from a kind of third-party company that specializes in visiting all the tracks and collating that. Sometimes the tracks own the data themselves and we get a track. Sometimes we have to go and and, uh, and create that data ourselves. Uh, and it's a combination sometimes, and it varies from track to track, but some tracks it's uh, basically a truck that drives around and shoots lasers in every direction, scans the surfaces, and, and we build that the tracks from that data sometimes it's that with a combination of uh, drones being flown over tracks and, and grabbing photogrammetry and, and things like that but yeah it varies from circuit to circuit but it's almost all the tracks in the game now are, are data driven rather than photo reference driven and then the cars is a similar situation so almost all the modern cars are obviously developed with uh with computer-aided design these days rather than somebody starting out with pen and paper so more often than not, we get access to that data, uh, which is usually way too detailed for any game engine. The number of polygons is ridiculous. It's the same data that factories use to, to actually start building the cars. So it's massively detailed. Uh, and we have to kind of uh, optimize that for the game engine. But the cars often, almost always modern cars, built start from that kind of computer data. And then they, the car brands or the race teams will always provide us along with that with physical data for the cars in terms of performance data, telemetry data from a selection of circuits, um, and driver input data sometimes as well. And we, that all gets built into the game engine. And then the final step usually is um, meeting with some of the real drivers who've driven those cars, if whether they're modern or, or historic. Sometimes it's retired drivers even for historic cars. And uh, getting those guys to, to drive the game and, and understand uh, whether that initial raw data is, is feels close to the real thing, whether it needs to be tweaked, that kind of thing. So I've been there for some of those uh, days in person, which are always really fascinating. Uh, th those have been really fun to be a part of over the years. And then the, the actual development of the, the historic cars is usually quite different because the um, obviously they're, they're for most cars sort of um, probably from the early 80s back, there isn't the computer data. So that usually involves a combination of extensive photo reference and visiting a car in order to like take a handheld scanner and, and scan that into the computer 
And sometimes that's a case where we get to go and visit a car company's sort of in-house archive. So a lot of car companies these days have museums and if the cars are in museums, we can go and scan them. But some of them have these super secret underground bunkers basically full of old race cars that <laughs> oh, they, won't, that they yes. won't even, that maybe they're one of a kind and they won't even risk putting them in a museum because it's the only example left. Uh, some race car companies, particularly in the 60s even, were like, scrapping the cars after they stopped racing them because they thought no one would ever care yeah. and they might only have one left or uh, or whatever and getting access to those is tricky and then sometimes it's even uh, private collectors who have the only that the car companies may not have archived some of their older stuff at all and it's just in the hands of of private collectors so often we have to go and find those guys and get their individual permission to go and scan their cars but sometimes we also have to get the private collectors vetted by the car companies themselves and whether they trust that guy to actually have it up to what was really the factory spec or not. So it's wow. this whole, mi- whole minefield of stuff. But, yeah, it's, it's really exciting to to um, to be a part of those car processes sometimes and, and sometimes get to go see those cars in person. And sometimes that might be static, but, you know, maybe I get to occasionally go and on the days where we're also doing audio recordings and see those cars run. And some guys in the dev team will get to do ride-alongs so they can get a feel for what it's like inside the car where it's being driven. It's, it's really exciting, all that process. Hmm. Wow. When I asked this question, I had no idea that the the answer would be so complex and detailed. Yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing, you know. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean. I, I'm coming from from a time where uh, you know I played te- uh, test drive in the 80s, and 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 I was happy enough if the if the inside of the car looked different, you know, and there was no <laughs> different sound and so on. And now you say that even the developers go and drive the car and making sound recordings to make sure that everything is correct and uh, feels right in the game. Um, so so I wonder. As I said, sometimes you work with professional drivers and getting their opinion. Um, what is the perspective? What is the kind of feedback you are getting? I mean, I know as a kid of the 90s, I mean, people had the perspective that this was a waste of time and basically toys to to waste time. But I guess... You, well, well uh, nowadays I think, it's I think different. we could tell by his answer earlier that the, that this entire game is mostly just a ploy for the developers to go and play with cool cars. <laughs> they call us slightly mad for a reason, yeah. Um, yeah. It's been a kind of the real world drivers is interesting because it's you have to kind of go in with an with an under and try and figure out what that individual's understanding of simulation is as well. Like the the feedback is only as good as the the individual driver's understanding of simulation. So. With some of the guys who are maybe retired and, and did historic racing, we have to kind of plug them into the, the sim world a little bit first to make that feedback valuable. And in a lot of cases, that led to us working with, um, when we did, uh, a good example is when we did all the Porsche uh, testing with one of their real-world drivers for Project Cars 2. We, we ended up using a guy who uh, called Patrick Long, who's a US-based Porsche driver who races their cars in current modern championships, but he's also a sort of historian of Porsche himself and owns a bunch of old Porsche race cars that he he takes out for fun. So he had that modern kind of driver experience of working with simulators as part of his preparation for racing modern cars for real, and had the experience of racing the historic stuff that he that he owned personally. So that was a really good balance. Um, yeah, we had all sorts of, of weird and interesting experiences working with the real drivers. 
one of the, my favourite ones was that uh, there was one when we were working with, with McLaren a few years ago where um, we had a, we were doing their GT3 race car at the time, and the test driver said that the car felt very like a, a real GT3 car, but a bad one, and he couldn't figure out why. <laughs> and it turned out that one of the uh, information sheets that McLaren gave to us had the values for the suspension backwards, like they had the rear oh, suspension geez. values in the front suspension and the front suspension values in the rear. And as soon as we swapped that around, it was like, okay, it's fine now. That feels really good. So we have these experiences sometimes where, you know, it's only as good as the data we're given and the feedback we're given. And sometimes we're looking for little, uh, you know, little errors in there or little mistakes. And sometimes it's super obvious and sometimes it's more about a gradual feedback and a gradual process of, of finding those little things that need fixing or, or tweaking. Hmm. Uh, that same test with McLaren, actually, we were working with Pirelli tire engineers, which is very rare, like the hardest companies to get data out of for consumer simulation technology is the tire companies. They're very secretive about how race tires work. Um, and we had our, our uh, kind of tire physics programmer sat with his laptop with this uh, Pirelli race engineer sat next to him, and they basically we're tweaking values until both of their graphs overlaid on top of each other lined up perfectly. <laughs> and the, the joy on our programmer's face when that finally happened was really exciting as well. And yeah, all those kinds of experiences are, you know, it's the sort of things that happen in, in real world motorsport or in real world car development over a long period of time. You know, the, um, we have car companies who will say to us, oh, we spent six months going to test tracks developing this this prototype of a, of a road car even over this long period of time and they've sat with us and done the same kind of process in the digital world over a, you know a few days or even a few hours in some cases but doing the same kind of back-to-back -back a to b testing and for them it's really fascinating it's fascinating is it for us to get that insight into the real world they're kind of fascinated by our, our simulation world as well I mean, I mean, nowadays you have the advantage that if you make a mistake with the engine behavior, as I just said before, you can just apply a, a, an update. It it plays in over Steam and the problem is fixed. But back then in the 80s and 90s, if you had a major bug in the game, it stayed there. Um, um, so, um, I mean, nowadays you have it. Um, you have really those things to your advantage. Um, I wonder, because you mentioned at the beginning in, in your introduction that you are um, a collector yourself, and I found no information Googling around how about the physical release of the PC version. I mean, I found pictures, mockups that says PC DVD, but everywhere I look, I only find the download version. Sure, yeah, we don't actually have any plans at the moment for a physical PC release of the game. As you, as you said, though, I'm being a collector myself. I'm, I understand that frustration that sometimes happens with the, the modern age of digital games. If, if we can, we'd love to do it if we can do it. Uh, the scope isn't there right now, uh, particularly with this year being a weird one uh, in yeah. terms of uh, you know, the, the challenges that come with physical games in general. So it's definitely a year where we are leaning more towards digital. But yeah, if, it, if it's possible in the future, we'll, we'll look at it. But there aren't any specific plans for us at the moment. Ah, okay. So those mock-ups are really just mock-ups because um, they just had this PC DVD laying around and put it on the picture. Yeah, I think though, though in cases where yeah, you like the kind of 3D box mock-ups and stuff, it, yeah, stuff we have to do for, for retailers and stuff. Interesting. Despite its download only, 
on, on many pictures is still the SPC DVD. I mean, I mean the data amount probably would fit. It's just, um, as I said, mock up for the retailers. Um, it's it's interesting, as I said, um, it is because of this special year. So, I guess the planning just didn't come through. I mean, I mean there are alternatives. I mean, for example, when uh, Need for Speed Payback was released in uh, in 2017, they actually decided to make the physical release just a steel box, where you could burn your your DVD with with the installer and put it inside the steel box. Yeah. But for me, that's not really a physical release. But that is something a lot of publishers publishers are doing right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, there are some exceptions. For example, Flight Simulator 2020 was released on 10 DVDs. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe not the most environmentally friendly way of releasing a game in the current era. <laughs> and 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 I and I thought like when GTA 5 was released um, uh, five years ago, I thought like, wow, five DVDs. That's a big game. And then came Microsoft with Flight Simulator 2020. Like we can we can top that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course. I see. I see. Well, the reasoning Microsoft put was there are still areas in the world where there is um, slow internet and they at least have 90 gigabytes of data, which I think probably with Project Cars uh, 3, you don't have as much data to download. Yeah, I think the flashing thing is interesting actually because it's probably, um, if you look at the genre over the last, God knows how long, you know, since they've existed basically, since the 80s, since um, flight simulators came around it's tended to be an older demographic so i, I wonder as well if, if microsoft were there were maybe thinking kind of you know we need to be in the places where those people are likely to buy software and they may not necessarily go to steam or the, the windows store or whatever so that, that may be an element of that there as well although that game does still i think it still has a huge patch doesn't it anyway even if you have all the discs so. yeah 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 it's it's um it, it allows pre-installing from the DVDs that takes like five hours. And then you still have 30 gigabytes to download yeah. afterwards. Yeah. So it's like, sort of like a, a worse version of, that, of buying L.A. Noire for the Switch or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of, yeah. And well, I mean, as, as you mentioned it, um, the COVID situation and the physical market, I mean, that is why I really like the Switch because it still has uh, game cards, physical medias, you know. That's basically my thing, and and uh, I mean I mean they had games before that that had to be partly downloaded, but then Nintendo offered like um, game cards that were twice as big in memory. Suddenly, now this problem is solved. So let's see how the situation changes next year, and see if perhaps we can see um, Project Cars Four if if the if the mixed um, feedback from the community right now and from the press isn't um, well slowing it down and saying okay we will not do a project cast for because that is what what often happens in series once there is a mixed reviewed part often game series are discontinued and the, you know I mean famous example would be command and conquer where, where the last part had so bad reviews that they said like Okay, we are not doing it anymore. Well, that's that's for bad reviews. I mean, mixed reviews generally you would. I, I think mixed reviews you often do do a sequel. You just kind of go back to what you know works. 
we've that's, got uh, that's the question. Yeah. I was going to say we've got actually quite a long tail of, of support plan for this game, at least a year or so. So, uh, and one of the things we did with this game that we hadn't done before was we put a lot more uh, kind of analytics information into the game. So we're learning very quickly about how people are playing it, um, which we haven't necessarily been able to do in the same way in the past. We've got much more sophisticated at that. And also just in terms of, you know, we, we know a lot, as you as you can imagine from the crowdfunding background, we're mm-hmm. very in tune with, with our uh, fan base and and in terms of not just reading the things that they, they comment on themselves, but just gathering feedback generally and actually talking to them. We have a really good uh, Discord that people can jump into and, and ask questions directly to the dev team as well, which is really cool. So, yeah, we're learning all the time about all that sort of stuff. Uh, and that will be reflected in, in the updates and in the, the extra content that will be coming for the game over the, the next, at least uh, sort of next year or so. Ah, then you should send us an invite to the Discord because I'm not inside that Discord yet. <laughs> Maybe well, I should play, play the game first and then you'll have the questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, it, it came out of surprise. Suddenly the interview came uh, came faster than I expected. You were like, yeah, next Monday is good. So <laughs> that was that was pretty quick then. Um, well, so I would say it's, it's good to know that you said you took the risk and changed a bit of the gameplay and uh, tried to analyze how to improve um, a project cars for, I mean, Perhaps the solution is to make switchable modes between more arcadey and more simulation. I mean, that is what some games did that allowed switching between the two. But of course, I'm not an expert in simulation games. I don't know if this is a good idea even to make two game modes for one game. Sure. I mean, as I say, we've we've got lots to learn from from the community over, over the next year or so supporting this game. So. We're a little ways away from thinking about what sort of form Project Cars 4 will take. Um, but yeah, what you just mentioned, the, the guys at Co-Masters have, have sort of done a version of that with Formula 1 this year with a sort of, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but uh, sort of accessible handling model that's optional uh, within that game. Um, See, so it's one of the many areas where not, not just what we learn from our fans about our own game, but being part of Co-Masters now, I'm sure, depending on what information they learn from their fan base about that, that might be something we can learn about for the future as well. But yeah, the, at the moment we're a ways away from uh, from Project Cars 4 for sure. We're definitely in the um, it's kind of post-release uh, support window that will go on for a good while for Project Cars 3 first. What is the feature that you are proud of in Project Cars 3 that nobody talked about in all those reviews <laughs> and comments? There's, there's kind of, there... For me personally, there's, there's two things that really jump out. One is um, there's this thing called, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it, this thing called corner markers, which is basically how I think something we introduced to replace the kind of racing line assist that's become quite traditional over the years in terms of the you know, effectively a painted line on the ground that changes color to tell you into braking things. I think we really noticed um, in the way we play racing games as as people who are really into them and then watching the community and streams and YouTube videos and stuff that the people who use that racing line feature a lot in our games and in other games, they really over-rely on it and it stops becoming a, a learning tool and just becomes a bit of a crutch, basically. It becomes this kind of almost like a, like a note highway in a rhythm game, like a rock band or a guitar hero, where you're really just watching that and not really participating in the simulation, as it were. Mm-hmm. And 
the thing that they do in in the real world in kind of race school environments and, and track days is that they have cones positioned around the outside edge of the track so they'll have one on the outside edge on the way towards the corner as a okay this is a suggested breaking point one on the inside of the corner at the apex where this is where you should be aiming the car for on, on turn in and then one on the exit which is on the outside again and where you should aim the car towards on the exit and that's that stuff's there to build muscle memory for so if you eventually become a an actual racing driver and those cones are taken away from you you've built some muscle memory up for the car you're driving and for the circuit so we kind of adapted that into the game world with uh, the corner marker assist which replaces the racing line and that's similar markers that appear in the hood rather than physically on the circuit and they mark the same things breaking point apex point an exit point but being a video game we can adjust that stuff dynamic dynamically so depending on the circuit which car you're driving what upgrades you've applied to your car as well and that's a, a really good tool for building the muscle memory of of, uh, of that skill of driving racing lines and learning breaking points and it means that when you turn that off you're still sort of in tune with the car and the track that you've been driving and you're not necessarily going from this thing that you stare at and rely on to not having anything at all and having to start over again and basically relearn everything without it. Instead of that, it helps you build the muscle memory, which is really cool. Um, and we encourage players to eventually turn it off by giving them bigger XP point rewards at the end of races if they're not using it. So that, that's been really cool. And then also just the, the matchmaking side of the game, like we've had in Project Cars 2, we had uh, a racing license system for the online multiplayer that measured your skill and your pace and also sort of how safely you raced and how fairly you raced. But it existed as numbers in your profile, but didn't really get used really in the multiplayer side of the game. We had all that information about all the players, but didn't do a lot with it. So this time we've refined the way those calculations are made, but also introduced sort of full skill-based matchmaking. So whenever you're hitting and jumping into modes like quick race or the scheduled events that take place at certain times of each day, you're being matched properly against people who are similar not just similar ability to you, but similar uh, sort of sportsmanship to you in terms of how they drive as well. So the race is going to get fairer and more competitive for you the more often you play. And then that feeds into you know, the, the competitive side of the game and the esports scene and, and that kind of thing as well, which we're super proud of, especially at the, at the grassroots level, our ability to find new talent that's coming up through sim racing and help them to, to win some competitions and progress and make, and make a name for themselves. It's something we've had a good track record of with this franchise and yeah, hopefully that's going to carry on too. Great. Well, so um, for, from my side, I think yeah. you got it covered. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Where can people go to find out about this and to get the game and everything? Just uh, hit up projectcarsgame.com uh, for sure, or just uh, follow any of the Project Cars Game channels on you know, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links to the Discord I mentioned over there as well. So if you want to get more deeply involved and, and start chatting with the community, join some leagues, chat to the dev team, you can do that there as well. Awesome. Great. Thanks awesome. a lot. Yeah, cheers, well, guys. Have a good, have a good night. Yes, you too. Yep, thank See you. you. Bye-bye. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Cheers. <laughs> no problem.